you've got your own Bible, we're in Colossians chapter 3. And our primary text this morning is verses 18 and 19, but I don't want to read that out of context because I, I want us to remember what's been going on here in the book of Colossians. We have God changing us through his word and through the Holy Spirit. And I want to show you where he begins this thought. So Colossians 3, chapter 12 is where we'll begin. If you'll stand up for the reading of God's word. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. But do not be harsh with them. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to your word this morning, as we sang, we ask that your Holy Spirit would conform our hearts to your word. That everything we bring in here, any ounce of pride or any sense of, of having already arrived would just be demolished by the Holy Spirit this morning. Father, give us brokenness in our hearts this morning as we look to your word for guidance. Give us a sense that our greatest need is Jesus Christ. Show us Christ. In Christ's name, amen. One of the advantages that we have of preaching straight through a book of the Bible like Colossians is this. We as a church get to be exposed over and over again to these, these themes that we normally wouldn't talk about otherwise. I, I hope you've seen, though, that everything that we have talked about in the book of Colossians has been founded on Jesus Christ and his redeeming work, his bringing us in, reconciling us to himself. And Christ's work in us reverberates outward. It works its way from the core of who we are into every single area of our lives, every area. One of his works in us is that all those who were brought in to him no longer represent themselves. They represent the image of the one in whom they now live. The old life is gone. The old man has been swallowed up by Jesus Christ himself, the new man. Think about it this way. Think about buying a broken down home, what we usually call a fixer-upper. Susan and I, we've owned 
a lot of fixer-uppers, more than, than normal throughout our marriage. We usually avoid the ones that say condemned on the side. We let Jesus, we let Jesus take those ones. But when we purchase a home with all of its dry, wat, dry rot and uh, rodent infestations and the leaky roofs and the sagging floors and the stained carpet, well, that purchase is complete, right? It's been purchased. It's our house now. We own the home, but we don't leave it in its previous state. We begin to tear out the old and bring in the new. Tear out the old and make it new. The home begins to bear the image and the influence of the one who purchased it. Every room, not just the entryway, every room, every square inch of the home, inside and out, is being made new by its owner. It's the Holy Spirit. That's how he works in our lives. He, he remodels us. He tears out the old. He tears out the rot. And he conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ, the one who purchased us. And there are various areas of our lives, various rooms in our lives where we begin to see that newness coming to life. And many, many of you know that, that some of those rooms you keep from the Holy Spirit, don't you? And some of those rooms take a long time for him to get to. But if you're in Christ, he's going to get to them because you're his. He owns you and his imprint is going to be on you in every area of your life. So it is with Christian marriage. Christian marriages are to be the first earthly institutions impacted by our new union with Jesus Christ. Why do you think that is? It's because marriage was the first earthly institution impacted by sin. So it makes sense then, doesn't it? That, that marriage we would be the first institution that, that Christ would, would claim hold of and say, this is mine too. And he's going to reconcile that to himself, and he's going to work to undo all of the damage that's been done by sin. Marriages that have been made new in Christ look like this. Paul shows us. The wives submit to their husbands, and the husbands love their wives, and they're not harsh with them. That seems kind of simple, and because it's so simple, we think of it just as, as a command. But really, that's only made possible by Christ's work. And so, because of what Christ has done, Paul issues it as a command. He's saying, let Christ's work be made complete in you and in your marriage. And this is what Christ has done. This is what that looks like in your life. And we see it here with marriage. This is what Christ has done. This is what that work looks like in your marriage. And here's that command again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. The instruction is how, how those who are in Christ are to reflect their union with Christ in marriage. That's why you see that little phrase as is fitting 
another preposition, in the Lord, as is fitting in the Lord. If you are in the Lord, if you're in Christ, if you're a part of Christ's new creation work, then marriage looks like Christ. It's characterized by submission and love. In fact, that's the main point of of what I want you to get out of this morning. So if anything you get from this, it's already in your notes, it's at the top. Christian marriage bears the image of Christ because it is characterized by submission and sacrificial love. A fallen creation marriage doesn't look like this. A fallen creation marriage still bears the marks of the fall, the old Adam. Turn with me back to Genesis 3.16, if you will. It's at the very beginning of your Bibles. I don't have the page number for you. But it's the first book. Chapter 3, verse 16. While you're turning there, I, w- I want to briefly give you some context as to what's happening in the middle there of Genesis chapter 3. Previous to Genesis 3, God has created all things good. He's declared it good. And in that creation, God has created man. And he sees that this man is alone. There's nobody like him. There's no one to help him in his role of bearing the image of God and having dominion over creation on God's behalf. So God creates the woman from man's side. And he creates her to show that she was, at at his very core, a part of who he is. She's a part of him. Flesh of his flesh, Adam sings. Bone of his bones. And after she's created, the man sings that song, and, and they're brought together, two bodies brought together in one body, and they live and work together harmoniously in the presence of God. And there's no shame, there's no strife, then sin happens. Be a bumper sticker, shouldn't it? Sin happens. The woman is tricked into believing that she's somehow incomplete, that, that she's inferior, and, and that God is keeping good things from her. So she falls for the deceit. And the man who, who's there with her in the garden, he fails to protect his wife from the serpent. He, he's already failed to protect the garden itself from the invasion of this serpent. He fails to have dominion over this serpent. And he disobeys God. And he follows his wife into her deceit instead of leading his wife. And he eats of that tree that he was commanded not to eat of. That's your context. That's what's happened. So now we get to verse 16 in chapter 3. God is, is here right in the middle. I'm jumping. We're, we're dropping into his conversation. He's, he's right in the middle of explaining the consequences of the sins of the serpent and the man and the woman. Look at what he says to the woman. This is all we're going to look at. It's our focus. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And look at this. This one sentence that will be devastating to marriages. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
the wife's desire shall be for her husband, and he shall rule over her. That word desire, that's a, it's a negative word in this context. You see it again in Genesis 4-7. If, if you look there in the next chapter, Genesis 4-7, this is God talking to Cain, who, who's having these murderous thoughts towards his brother Abel. And God tells him, he says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And look at this. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Do you see the similarities? I hope you do. That's not an accident. Moses did not do that on accident when he wrote it down. There's striking similarities here, aren't there? The, the woman's desire is for her husband in the same way that sin's desire is to rule over Cain. That, that word desire there, speaking of Eve, the Hebrew scholars say, say that the language behind that is that she, she desires her husband's position. It's not that she desires him the way that you desire a piece of chocolate. It's, it's a, a negative desire. It's a desire to have his position, to conquer over him. In response to that desire of her, the husband will, will fight to rule over her. This is not the thing, this is not the way things were prior to the fall. In the pre-fall garden, the husband was the head of the wife, but he wasn't this autocratic ruler over her. Instead, the head and the helper wife bore the image of God together and they ruled over creation together in God's name. Prior to the fall, the wife submitted to her husband. She didn't desire to take his position. Sin introduced strife. With sin, a, a competition for power entered the marriage relationship. Remember what the original sin was. It was a desire to go outside of the way that God had ordered things. God's telling Eve, woman, that desire you had to be equal with me, to, to rule in your own right rather than with Adam and as my representative bearing my image, that desire has taken root in you. And now you're going to see it negatively affect your marriage. And in response, the man rules over his wife in competition with her desire for his position. And then what we usually see happens, because we've, we have experience with this, he, he's harshly abusive towards her on the one hand, or he just gives up the fight. He gives up. He checks out. Apathy happens. Passivity happens. The husband checks out. And he allows his wife to take his place as leader of the home. God's good, harmonious order has been corrupted. And now it's been turned upside down. That brokenness and strife is what defines fallen humanity, marriage, after sin has entered the world. There's good news. 
It's always good news. In the new creation, under Christ, an undoing of the fall has taken place. And the way things were before the fall, it can again be restored. And not just restored. This is what's beautiful about what Christ has done. It can be made even better. Because of the gospel, because of the rich gospel of Jesus Christ, marriage can again be what it was meant to be when it was created. The woman can freely submit to her husband as is fitting in the Lord. Because and only because. This is the only way she could do this. Her sinful flesh, along with its desires, have been crucified with Christ. Do you believe that? She's been raised up to new life in Christ. She doesn't bear Eve's burdens anymore. She's been born again into Christ. The wife can do this because in Christ, she knows she's been chosen by God. And she's been made holy in Christ. That God loved her and gave to her his son. And so as she loves the son, she's changed by him. And what happens? She becomes compassionate. She becomes kind. She becomes humble and meek and and patient. And she bears with her husband and she forgives him when he sins. Because he'll sin. How many times have I had to seek my wife's forgiveness and because of Christ's work in her, she forgives me? Seven times 77 and then some. And most of all, because of what Christ has done in the new creation wife, she can love her husband. And all of that newness, all of that Holy Spirit work in her frees her. She's free to willingly affirm and follow her husband's leadership. That's all submission is. What was impossible in her flesh has now been made possible and is expected in Christ. And the husband, rather than than harshly ruling over his wife, he can love his wife because he's been changed too. He, He knows at its very core, his identity is in Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to rule over anything anymore because he trusts that Jesus Christ is ruling over everything. Praise God. Amen, church. Thank you. I was afraid you weren't listening. <laughs> this is good news. We, we shouldn't take God's good commands to us and say, this is a burden. This is going to be hard for me to follow. God has given us this because it's good news. And so when we look to his word, we should be thankful over and over again to Jesus Christ. So growing in Christ-likeness, this husband, he grows in his role as the head of his wife, the shepherd, the leader of his family, because he's looking to Christ. 
He's seeing how Christ leads. He's seeing how Christ has loved his church in such a way that he gives his own life to the church. And the husband leads and he loves his wife and he gives of himself to her in such a way that her trust of him and her submission to him are easy. In growing in Christ-likeness, the husband puts to death his own idolatrous desire for control. And he puts on compassion, and he puts on kindness, and humility, and meekness, and ever-bearing, ever-bearing patience with his wife. And when he has a complaint against her, what does he do? He forgives her because his Savior's forgiven him. And above all this, he loves his wife freely and fully because he has first been chosen, made holy, and loved by God. Do you see how this fits together? And now the marriage, now that marriage between two people who are unified in Christ are unified together, and that reflects something greater than the marriage itself. It reflects the submission and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Think about, think about the submission of the incarnate Son. Jesus made flesh. Think about his submission to the Father. When Jesus was at Gethsemane, he's preparing to go to the cross according to the eternal plan of the Father. You remember what his prayer was? Luke twenty-two forty-two. This is Jesus' words. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is submission in its purest form. Now I want you to think about this. If you're, if you're troubled, and I know because of what our world says, and many of us are so drawn to the world that we would reject God's word, but I want you to think. If you're troubled by this idea of submission, because it makes you uneasy, does the son submitting to the father make him less than the father? Not at all. Not at all. He's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, as we confess. He submits to the Father, not because of inferiority. He submits to the Father because he trusts the Father's good plan, and he knows from eternity past that the Father loves him. And in that submission to the Father, the Son then loves the church sacrificially, and he dies for her. Christ is in the middle. Marriage can reflect Christ, the one in the middle. The wife has the opportunity in a Christian marriage to submit in the same way that Christ does. And the husband has the opportunity to love in the same way that Christ does. Both the woman and the man reflect their Savior, Jesus Christ, because they've been born again into him. And as a result, the marriage itself is a parable to the watching world to the nature and work of Jesus Christ. You see, Colossians 3.18 and 19, it's not about us. It's about 
Christ and God's desire to see Jesus Christ glorified in us. Christian marriage is meant to bring glory to God. I think a lot of times, instead of a marriage that glorifies God, you know what we settle for? We settle for a marriage that works. We just want it to work. And we've got acres and acres and landfills filled with books of all these guidelines, all these guidelines for a, a happy, long-lasting marriage. Google it. it. It will get millions of hits. How do I have a happy marriage? Lots of ways to think about this. And there are marriage retreats, and there are seminars, and whole industries are built around trying to answer this forever question. How can two selfish sinners dwell in mutually gratifying happiness together? Just think about that question. And the ironic thing is this. A happy marriage is not going to happen as long as either spouse is looking to the other person to satisfy them. You know why? Because they never will satisfy them. We cannot ultimately be satisfied in our spouses. That's good news. That is good news. Even, even if that person speaks our love language, even if they give us everything we ever thought we wanted, we'll never be satisfied in them. And as a result, you know what happens in marriage? We grow in resentment towards them. Because we're expecting from them something they could never provide and something they were never meant to provide. God did not create marriage for our happiness. He created it as a, as a medium for our sanctification, for his glory. He offers Christ to us for our happiness. When we're satisfied in Christ, when, when our source of joy is Jesus Christ and the fellowship with the Father that, that he provides for us, then we can be truly freed to find joy in our marriage, but not until then. Let me show you a proof text for this. One of the most unusual passages in the New Testament is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 39 to 40. If you'll turn there with me. It's a really strange passage because it does not fit the world's paradigm for marriage. But if you follow God's design, if you're looking to God to look to see how he designed marriage, then this verse will make perfect sense to you. 1 Corinthians 7, 39-40, Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. That means only another Christian. Yet, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. Are you? Paul is saying that a widow, regardless of her age, you know, even if her husband died at 26, regardless of her age, she will be happier 
And this is the only place in the Bible you should see the word happy. Any only place in the New Testament. She will be happier if she remains single rather than remarrying. Why? Because happiness isn't meant to be found in our spouse, church. It's not found in marriage. It's found in Jesus Christ. But our human tendency, despite however many times we're taught otherwise, despite however many times our, our experiences prove otherwise, our stubborn tendency is to try and try and try again to find happiness and satisfaction in our spouse. So Paul says to these widows, you know what, if you don't remarry, you're less likely to slip into that old habit of looking outside of Jesus Christ for your happiness and for your satisfaction. But don't, don't think it doesn't just down on marriage. Marriage is good. Marriage is beautiful. I love my wife. <laughs> I, I am glad I married her. But no earthly marriage is the end all and be all of human existence. You aren't somehow less human or less complete if you are not married. And saying that marriage is the end all be all of all existence, all human existence, that's what that communicates to those who are single. That they are less, that they'll never be fully human. But that's a lie, it's not true. Marriage is, is a picture, it's a display of something more beautiful, something more lasting and fulfilling. Jesus Christ himself. And what we're seeing in Colossians is that our marriage most glorifies Jesus Christ when the husband and the wife are most reflecting Jesus Christ in the ways that God has called them to. Husbands through sacrificial love and wives through submission. Paul has taken us on this journey and shown us this ginormous cosmic picture of Christ reconciling all things to himself. And then he includes us. By God's mercy, he includes us in that group of all things that are being reconciled. And then he brings us together as his body and says, we as the church are to bear the image of Christ because We've been brought into Christ. We're being created new in him. And as these new creation people, we have all these other relationships, not just the body of Christ, but these other earthly relationships that are supposed to be transformed, that are supposed to be made new by what Christ has done. Everything we see here in Colossians is a testimony to what Christ has done in justifying us before the Father. And what he's doing right now, what he's doing in sanctifying us, recreating us after his likeness. What looks like a teaching about marriage is really a teaching about Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. And what that looks like in marriage. All of that is true. If, if both the husband and the wife are Christians. But I, I want to, because this is important to our church, I want to ask this. How does this apply to a marriage where only one spouse is in Christ? 
if only one of you is in Christ, then it's likely true that only one of you is seeking to obey God's good design for marriage. And so your marriage will not as fully reflect and communicate the gospel. But I still love you. And, and, and God still wants you to communicate the gospel in Christ. And so I want to show you what his word says about your situation. This does not mean that you individually, Christian, cannot bear the image of Christ in your marriage. And so bring glory to Christ. It doesn't mean that. You still can bear Christ's image. You can still bring glory to Christ in your marriage. Your, your ability to grow in Christ-likeness isn't dependent somehow on your spouse's salvation. It's dependent on your faith and the Holy Spirit's work in you and nothing else. You will grow in Christ-likeness if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In fact, husbands, if you are sacrificially loving your wives who aren't believers, or husband, wife, singular, right? Then one of the goods that comes of that is that your love of your wife is communicating the gospel to her. You're washing her with the water of the word, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And as a result of your communicating the gospel to this unbelieving woman, through your love for her, one of three things is going to happen. She's either going to despise you for it, because the gospel only reminds her of her need for a savior and she wants nothing to do with that. Or two, she'll take advantage of you for it. In which case, you're still called to love her sacrificially. And now you get an added bonus. You get to identify with Christ's suffering. And I don't mean that as a joke. You identify with Christ's suffering in your love for your wife. Or something else will happen. And this is my prayer for you she will be won over by the Holy Spirit working in her heart through the communication of the gospel in your life and in your marriage. That's my prayer for you. Wives, if you are married to a non-Christian man, Christ's call to you is to reflect your union with Christ in your marriage. Okay, that doesn't change. It's fitting for you. It's appropriate even for you because you're in Christ to submit to your husband. That's how you communicate the gospel to him, through your submission. Christ submitted to the will of the Father, even to the point of death. You're to seek to win your husband to Christ through your submission. To give glory to Christ through your submission. It does not at all mean that you follow your husband into sin and away from Christ. Your eternal marriage to Christ is always your first priority, okay? Submission to a non-Christian husband means respecting him and honoring him, even when he's not respectful or honorable. 1 Peter 3.1, this should be your life verse. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That is one of the most challenging verses for, for women who are in Christ who are married to non-Christians. That is probably, I, I have no idea how to identify with that. 
what you're going through is something I will never know the difficulty of. And I want to remind you here, even in that text, it says, may be one. He may, he might be one. It doesn't say he will be one. There are many Christian women whose husbands do not know Christ, or they want nothing to do with him. And it's been that way for a long time for these women. And gathered here in our church are a number of women in this very situation. So church, can I just encourage you? Pray for these women. Pray for these husbands as well. Pray, pray for these women that, that by, the, by the power of the Spirit working in them, God would give them a humility and a love and a respect for their husbands even when their husbands are arrogant and unlovable. Pray that these women would adorn themselves with Christ, that their, their beauty would be Christ himself, and that imperishable beauty of Christ in them would be precious to God. And pray that those husbands would see that and love that in them and want Christ for themselves. Church, encourage these saints. What they're going through is it's unimaginably difficult. You think your marriage is hard. It's not hard compared to their marriages. When, when a Christian couple is growing in Christ, they're able to encourage one another in that growth, aren't they? And that builds them up. But when an unequally yoked Christian in her marriage or his marriage is growing in their faith, they do not have this encouragement at home. In fact, their pursuit of Christ is often met with ridicule and opposition and jealousy. So you know what God has done for them? He has brought you and me together as a church into the lives of these dear brothers and sisters to love them and encourage them. What they don't have at home, they have here. That's what we're meant to be. This is one of the many reasons why the church exists. So church, let's be the church, can we? I invite, invite these unequally yoked couples into your homes. Show them Christian hospitality. Christian husband, listen to me. When these couples come into your home, model Christ-like love and leadership of your wife to these non-Christian husbands. Don't demean your wife. Don't talk down about her. Don't make jokes about her. They're not funny anyway. R remember that you're putting on display your union with Christ for this unbeliever. And your marriage is putting on display what a new creation marriage looks like. That's a privilege. Live it out. Christian wives, when these couples come to your home, model Christ-like submission to your husband. Model it. Show these unbelieving wives what that looks like. Don't talk about your husband's flaws, though they are legion. Don't talk about his inadequacies. Don't talk about the things that annoy you about him. Don't nag him, please. <laughs> or compare him with other men. Instead, display for this unbeliever your union with Christ through your respect for your husband. Show this woman that you love her enough to share the gospel with her. 
through your words, through your hospitality, and through your marriage. See, our marriages, they're meant to be a witness to our message. Our message that we are sinners that are more flawed, more sinful, more undeserving, more unlovable, more rebellious than we will ever hope to even understand. And yet, at the same time, we're more loved by Christ, we're more forgiven by him, we're more justified in him and made new in him in ways that that are more remarkable and extravagant than we'll ever know. That message can be made visible in your marriages through submission and love. Husbands, remember this. This is our parting words, okay? God has given us Christ so that our selfish and prideful lives could end. It'd be over. And we could be made new in Christ. And then he's given you your wife to give you opportunities every day to show your newness in Christ through loving her. Wives, God has given you Christ so that you could die to yourself and your desires for control and that you could be brought to new life in Jesus Christ. And he's given you your husband to remind you that every time you submit to your husband, you're identifying, you're finding your identity with your Savior. But this message isn't just for husbands and wives. For singles, students, widows, there's a message here for you too. God has given you Christ. If you're in him, your identity is in Christ. You are hidden in Christ, and you can be totally satisfied in Christ by the Spirit working in you. I want to I close this morning by reading a paragraph out of John Piper's book, Momentary Marriage. If you're looking for a marriage book that points you to Jesus Christ, this is it, aside from God's Word. Momentary Marriage by John Piper. He says this at the end of the book. He says, may God give us eyes to see what matters most in this life. May the Holy Spirit whom he sends make his crucified and risen son the supreme treasure of our lives. And may that treasure so satisfy our souls that the root of every marriage-destroying impulse is severed. And may the marriage-watching world be captivated by the covenant-keeping love of Christ. Amen. Let that be our prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we, oh, we are so thankful to be brought into Jesus Christ. God, would you tear out in us any desire to have to settle for marriages that work? And would you build in us a desire that our marriages would be glorifying to the one who saved us and bought us and is making us new. Let our marriages glorify Christ. Let our church glorify Christ. God, let everything we do be in the name of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.